Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, to one of the most fascinating and marvelous sections of this entire book, and really this entire chapter, as we come today to verses uh, 17 through 30. And I want to begin today just uh, a section that we'll take a few weeks to get through, but I want to read the entire section as we frame it up in our minds. You'll notice uh, Paul says there in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we might also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is an entire section that's really about, if you could say it in one word, it's about glory. At least that's the way it's framed as Paul begins there with, uh, in verse 17, speaking about being glorified together with Christ, and in verse 18, how this glory doesn't compare with the sufferings that we have now. He begins there, and he moves all the way consistently through to verse 30, where he links together this magnificent chain of God's providential care over us, resulting ultimately in our glorification. So Paul is taking this section and turning our sights to the glory that awaits us. But it's not just glory, as glorious as it is, but it's glory through suffering. A glory in spite of suffering. This is the Apostle Paul really helping us reconcile the reality of everything he's been telling us in, verse, in the first 16 verses of this chapter, what it means to be a son of God, a child of God. We've been seeing how we can have confidence in that because of various things the Lord has done in our hearts. First of all, because of a new mind, a new, as we've said, value system where we now long to, to do the, the things of God. We now feel conviction when we don't, genuine heartfelt conviction over our sin. And secondly, as we saw last week, because of the internal testimony of the Spirit, 
We have those things that are confirming for us that we are God's children. And Paul assures us that we are the children of God because we have those signs. Those are the signs that we've been brought from death to life. Those are the signs that we're led by God's Spirit. Therefore, we have been adopted into His family. Those are the signs that not only give us confidence that we're His child, but being His child, they give us the confidence that we'll never again be subjected to condemnation. But it's on that assurance, the assurance that we're God's children, that Paul makes this summary statement in verse 17 And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And with that statement, Paul transitions from talking about what we are as God's children to talking about what we will be. We're heirs, and what is an heir? Of course, it's someone who is in line to inherit something, someone who is in line to receive something, someone who maybe as of yet hasn't received it, but they look into the future with some level of expectation, some level of hope. And as a part of God's family, Paul is pointing us to the fact that we have an inheritance that's waiting for us. We don't, in other words, fully possess everything to which we have a right as God's child, but we're guaranteed it. And in that sense... We speak sometimes about our salvation as if it is a completed event, but the reality is when you look into Scripture, it is an incomplete event. We are, you might say, half saved. We have been saved because of God's predetermined plan, and we are saved in the sense that it is a settled fact, but we are not fully saved in the sense that God still has more to give to us. There's an inheritance something that we take full possession of, an enjoyment that is still future for us. And Paul gets into it really in these verses and he just talks about it in this summary word that we call glory or glorification. And he begins to talk to us about how as God's children we are to be anticipating, we are to be expecting, we are to be eager for this glory. It's our inheritance. It's not something we fully experience now, but it's something that is ours as surely as God's predetermined plan has made it ours in time past. Now, when you speak in biblical terms, this is the true hope of every Christian. It is not heaven. It is not streets of gold. It is not reunion with lost loved ones, as great as all of those things are. Our true hope, our greatest inheritance is just this. It is glorification together with Jesus. That is uh, the, the, basically the final work whereby God makes us completely sinless. As I, as I said last week, our outer body is transformed to, to mirror what has already taken place in our inner man. We are glorified And when that happens, we will be finally and completely set free from all remaining sin in our flesh, free from the corruption of our fallen humanness, free from the remaining sinful impulses that are associated with our fallen flesh. And all of this, Paul says in verse 18, is a glory that is yet to be revealed in us. We're heirs of it. 
fellow heirs with Christ, meaning that we will inherit a glorified body just like His. We will inherit His kingdom together with Him, which is just an unspeakable grace that's been given to us by God. But Paul wants us to know we set our minds there because that is what God has predestined us for. That's what he eventually tells us in verses 28 through 30. It's ours. Now that's important for you to understand because uh, it might seem incongruent to you that God would speak of you so confidently as his child when you look around at your circumstances and you don't feel like he's treating you like a child. When you're looking around and you're looking at your financial struggles and you're looking at your struggles in relationships and you're looking at your struggles with your own sin and you're looking at the struggles with the world and you're looking at all those struggles and you're, you're sitting there asking yourself, if I am God's child, where is he? Why isn't he taking care of me? Where are all of the riches that go along with being one of his children? And this is why Paul wants to make sure we understand What he says there in verse 17 at the end of it, as he basically adds to all of this great inheritance, this condition, that all of this is ours, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. That is the pathway to glory. It always has been, it always will be. Because it was a pathway of our Lord. It's a pathway for everyone who wants to be an heir together with Him. Paul will pick it up down in verse 28 when he lets us know that God is working all things together for our good. That all of this, he says in verse 29, is because He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. So if we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, it shouldn't surprise us that we might also have to walk the same pathway of Christ. If Jesus suffered, it shouldn't surprise us if it's God's will for us also to suffer. As Robert Haldane says, Christians often dwell on their own sufferings while they overlook the sufferings of their Lord to whom they are to be conformed. You want to think about suffering, think about Christ's suffering. You want to think about your suffering, think about your suffering in light of His suffering. If you want to think about God's goodness in your life, think about it in light of what God did for His own Son. Jesus said it this way in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Jesus understood the nature of this fallen world. It will always harbor its animosity towards God's truth. It will always harbor its animosity toward his word. It will always harbor its animosity towards the gospel and and towards its savior. And if you are in Christ, it will harbor its animosity towards you. So you shouldn't be shocked when all of this happens. This is exactly why Jesus warned that if you want to follow Him, 
If you want to be His, if you want to be a child of God, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, if you want to be in Christ, then you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. It is the invariable pathway of discipleship, but it's also the invariable pathway to glory. This is what Paul says, where heirs provided we suffer with Him so that we can be glorified with Him. This was so true that the early church even put it into sort of a, a, a rhyme, if you will, over in 2 Timothy chapter 2. As Paul writes to Timothy, he reminds him of this that was most likely recited in the early church. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 11 Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, that if we died with Him, we'll also live with Him. If we endure, we will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He'll also deny us. If we're faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. So here he's saying, look, if we die together with Him, we'll live with Him. If we endure, that is endure through all these sufferings, then we'll reign together with Him. And this was a a sort of a mantra that they no doubt would have reminded themselves as they went through all the suffering that the early church experienced. And this was their summary statement of what the Christian life was to be about. That this was their reminder of what they were to always keep in mind. That the pathway to glory, the pathway to life is a pathway of death. It's a pathway of suffering. There was no shallow message of health and wealth and prosperity if you followed Christ. There was no message that He's going to make you always uh, prosperous in your, in your uh, business and in your financial matters and in your health and all those things. There was just the message that Jesus preached, that the apostles preached, that this will cost you, that it will bring you suffering. But the promise was always there that if you suffer with Him, you'll be glorified with Him. Lest you think that being one of God's children somehow exempts you from all this. If you've been reading all this that Paul says about being one of His children, thinking that He's not taking care of you, looking at your hardships, doubting God's promises, confused, because you were thinking that God's children shouldn't suffer. Paul's writing all this to make sure that we know that suffering is as much a part of God's plan for you as it was for His own Son, Jesus Christ. He's, um, he's not just talking about suffering persecution either. He is really talking about the entire scope of suffering that comes into this life because this is where he eventually goes at the end of the chapter down in verse 35. He talks about this suffering again and he mentions tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. It's all a part of God's plan. It's all a part of God's pathway. And he's working all of it together for your good. As someone once said, smooth seas don't make great sailors. And in the same way, easy pathways don't make humble and grateful children. And so God is bringing us down this pathway of suffering, but then Paul immediately adds, having stated that reality, he immediately adds in verse 18, 
For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. In other words, there is a future reality for us. It might seem incongruent with what you're presently experiencing, but you shouldn't even compare that. You shouldn't even be weighing that. He wants us to know that this future inheritance, this future glory, far outweighs our present suffering. It's not really even a comparison as much as it is a contrast. As he says in 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It's like taking two uh, 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 weights, if you will, in the balance of scales, and on the one side you have the whole weight of the bulk of glory, and on the, and on the other side all you have is the mere dust that might settle on the scales. It cannot move it. It's not even to be compared, Paul says. He wants you to have confidence that this suffering doesn't sever you from the love of God. It doesn't sever you from the plan of God. It's not the last word of God on your relationship to Him nor on your childhood with Him, your adoption as sons. And as much as anything, He wants you to maintain an eager expectation for what awaits you in glory. As Christopher Ashe says, Paul, quote, takes men and women mired in the maze of incomprehensible suffering and gives them the aerial view. It's really what Paul's doing beginning in verse 18 all the way down through verse 30. He's been talking about how you're a child of God. He, he introduces how all this suffering is going to be there in their life. And, and then what he does, beginning in verse 18, is he just lifts you up out of all of the mire of the day-to-day anxieties and worries that you struggle with. He lifts us up in these following verses and gives us, if you will, the divine perspective on what this suffering is really all about. And as he does that, he really walks us through, you might say, four different perspectives involving four different players, if you will, to help us comprehend God's glorious purposes in all of this suffering. Four different perspectives from four different participants in the working out of God's glory for us, the glory to be revealed in the sons of God. The first one comes to us from the first participant that Paul mentions, and we'll only have time to look at this one this week. It's given to us in verses 19 through 22, and it is the parallel with creation's suffering. The parallel with creation's suffering. Creation, Paul begins to tell us in verse 19, is experiencing its own suffering. It's experiencing its own frustration in its desire to glorify God. That is the purpose for which God made creation. And when creation is not able to fulfill that, there is a a sense of incompleteness. There is a sense of frustration. And so Paul sort of personifies creation here when he says in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing or eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. This is creation personified. 
spoken about as if it had the feelings of a, of a person. Very similar to what you see in the Old Testament when the picture of, is given to us of trees clapping their hands, of, of skies that are singing, of mountains that are moved to rejoice. Paul, like other biblical writers, is picturing creation with these human-like characteristics. And here he pictures it eagerly waiting on something. And the word is vivid. It takes the word for head and the word for stretch. And so you get the idea of someone stretching their head out and standing on their tiptoes and lifting their eyes to the highest point they can get, trying to peer over the horizon to see what's coming down the road. This is the picture that he gives us of a creation yearning and longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the revealing of our glory. And he goes on to explain this yearning and eager longing with really three key phrases uh, that that frame for us a, a past and a present and a future for creation and give us clear reason why creation would be in this position of longing and yearning and expectation. First of all, you'll notice in verse 20, Paul says that the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. That's a reference, of course, back to the early chapters of Genesis and particularly to the account of the fall of man where as a part of that fall, God declares, you remember in Genesis 3.17, cursed is the ground because of you. That is because of Adam, because of Eve. Cursed is the ground. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. So as a part of the fall of mankind, God not only cursed mankind, but He actually cursed creation. He cursed the ground and the earth and the cosmos. And now... Although creation was made and designed to be a theater to to which God would put His glory on display, it is a malfunctioning theater at best. There are still dim reflections of God's glory, but is a reflection, if you will, through a broken glass, a broken mirror. Genesis 1 tells us when God made the world, when He made the heavens... When he made everything that is in the universe, he looked at it, Genesis one thirty one tells us, and he declared that it was very good. He was pleased. He looked at it with joy, with approval. But creation didn't stay that way. The fall of man into sin brought corruption It brought decay, it brought marring. When God cursed it, creation began to bring forth thorns and thistles. They didn't exist before that. There was a world without all of these things that bring so much pain and suffering for mankind. There was a world without thorns and thistles, without destruction and catastrophe, that makes life such a struggle for us now. That wasn't the original plan. The original plan, the original state, as I said, was to be a theater for God's glory, but that's not the way it is now. 
The original creation that was designed to be very good, designed to be uh, providing a constant environment of blessing and provision and protection for men and women, now it is full of thorns and thistles. And ever since the fall, creation has been subjected into a state of frustration. Frustration in its purposes. Literally, the word is emptiness. Not that there's a a complete emptiness, but there's an inability might be a better way to say that. It has been subjected to a, a, a hindrance and an inability to fulfill all that God has intended for it. And instead of Uh, being in a a state of magnifying Him. It's in a state of decay, a state of downgrade. You know, the environmentalists have it right. All all the people who are going around there telling us that the world is is, uh, heating up or cooling down or whatever it might be, all the people are telling us that the resources are being drained and all the people who are out there telling us that the future might be worse than it is right now, they're right. But what they don't get is that it's not going to be reversed by throwing away a few aerosol cans and creating a few more uh, efficient vehicles and grabbing a few more solar panels and windmills. That's not going to do anything. It will only, only be righted with the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. Mankind will not and cannot reverse this curse. It's impossible. Until this revealing, creation is trapped in this cycle of corruption and decay and it's bringing untold affliction and suffering into the life of mankind. Volcanic eruptions and wildfires and blizzards and tornadoes, typhoons and avalanches and mudslides and floods, droughts and heat waves and epidemics and infections, cancers, meteor showers, solar flares, radiation, all kinds of of harmful and destructive Um, forces that are unleashed really around uh, this world and throughout the universe. Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. Second law of thermodynamics, right, called entropy. Things cannot move upward. They always move downward. You take a car and you park it out in the woods and you leave it there for a few years. You come back, what are you going to see? You're going to see rust. You're going to see decay. You leave your tools out Over the winter, over the summer, in the elements, what are you going to come back? They're going to be rusted. They're going to be weakened. They won't be stronger. They'll be weaker. Everything is decaying. The world is cursed. Entropy is taking place. The law of of second dynamics, so the universe is winding down. It's in the process of disintegration. It's headed toward a, a, a disastrous dissolution. If God doesn't intervene. Really, it's headed that way anyway. As Peter says, there will be an uncreation when God will ultimately recreate a melting down of everything that is. The um, scientists have recognized this. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, wrote a book a number of years ago called The Language of God. And in that book, he points to this, this disintegration at, at an enormously rapid rate all around us. In fact, if you take Collins' 
calculation seriously. There's no way that you could mathematically and scientifically calculate backwards and extrapolate from that rate of disintegration back to where scientists want to be. Four or five billion years old is this universe, they tell us. You couldn't get back really more than just a few thousand years if their calculations are right. But we're in this process of disintegration. We see it all around us. We hear reports of these catastrophes and upheavals and and earthquakes. One of the most devastating on record. We don't have record of uh, many of them from ancient times. One of the oldest we know in 1556 happened in Shanxi province of China. 830,000 people died in one day as their homes just collapsed on them. 1755, an earthquake took place in Portugal. 80,000 people died. 1857, an earthquake in, uh, earthquake in Naples, Italy, right at the foot of Mount uh, Vesuvius. 11,000 people died. 1908, right near Messina in, in um, uh, Reggio Calabria, which is right across the uh, Straits of Sicily there, there was this massive earthquake. 20,000 people died. We were with Johnny Gravino this past year, and he's telling us the city never recovered. It never recovered. 1960 in Morocco, 10,000 people killed by an earthquake. 1970 in Peru, 70,000 people died. 76 in Guatemala, 25,000 people in a single day died. 76, the great earthquake of Tianjin, China, killing between 240 and 255,000 people. 1985, some of you may remember, an earthquake in Mexico City killed 10 million. In 88, in Armenia, 25,000 people died. In 2001, in India, 21,000 people killed by a violent earthquake. 2002, in Iran, 31,000 people died. And of course, in 2004, just a little over a decade ago, in the... uh, South Indian Ocean, 283,000 people died when a Sumatran earthquake caused an, a massive tsunami that swallowed up cities. 2005, 75,000 people died in a Kashmirian earthquake. This isn't what God designed. This isn't His original design, we should say. This isn't very good the way God designed creation to be very good and it seems at least like things are getting worse it seems as if these are coming all the time more and more powerful more and more deadly or you could talk about plagues and famines 400 years before Christ in the city of Athens, a plague, probably smallpox, swept through the city and a massive crippling of the city brought down an entire empire. It was replaced by the Roman Empire, the Alexandrian Empire replaced by the Roman Empire, which saw its own series of plagues. There were so many of them, they just named them after the emperors in which they happened. You had the Antonian Plague, the Cyprian Plague, the Justinian Plague. Constantinopolian plague. 
You can jump ahead to 1347 when the Black Plague swept across Europe and England and Ireland and Scotland and Russia. These people who had these enormous tumors all over their, their, their armpits and their groins, some of them as large as an egg, some people reporting tumors growing out of their body as large as apples. And then around those tumors began to appear the black spots of rotting flesh. That's why they call it the Black Plague. Until eventually their body was consumed with gangrene. And they died. 75, somewhere between 75 and 200 million people. 16th century, of course, had its own great London plague. The 17th, the Italian plague. Another one in Spain in the 17th century. The 18th century, this horrible plague in London. One in Vienna. Bubonic plague in Moscow, the 19th century, millions in the last 50 years of the 19th century, millions were killed in China because of bubonic plagues. People today watch the news carefully as they hear about these ongoing infections and modern medicine doing its best, but it's a constant, constant battle against the corruption of a fallen world. The medicines themselves bring their own side effects. And even then, now and again, you have some breakout, some epidemic, even despite our best efforts. You could go on to talk about famines, natural disasters, all kinds of catastrophes. None of it was the way God originally designed creation to work. All of it is a result of the, uh, of the curse That initial outbreak of thorns and thistles has surged on a cosmic scale of decay and corruption. Now thankfully, that's not the end of the story. As Paul takes in verse 21, he takes us from that sort of past era of cursing in verse 21 to the future. As Paul says, creation was subjected to futility, but in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God, He didn't just curse the ground, but He gave hope. He created expectation of some sort of restoration. Expectation that one day, creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. People read that and they ask, oh, where did God do that? Where did God give hope that somehow this was a temporary thing. They go back and read Genesis 3. They read the curse. They don't see any direct promise there of restoration. Some people have tried to back up prior to the curse back in verse 15 and and see the statement that God would bruise the head of Satan, a promise that was made to mankind and somehow sort of subsume the promise of creation under that. But that's a stretch Really, it isn't right there in Genesis 3 so much as it is all over the rest of the Old Testament. As Charles Hodge says, quote, Nothing is more familiar to the readers of the Old Testament than the idea that the whole face of the world is to be clothed in a new beauty when the Messiah appears, end quote. This has been the recognition of theologians throughout all time. 
Unless somehow you read all of that as just some sort of grand poetical narrative, something less than literal, and you eliminate all those statements of hope, then you can't miss it. Hope is everywhere. And Paul had a tremendous understanding of this, and and he understood that there was a tremendous hope that had been given by God, hope that would be coordinated, if you will, with the resurrection, with the restoration of the children of God. As he says, creation will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's when it's going to take place. So in as much as you hope for a glorious freedom and restoration of yourself, Paul says at the same time it's going to happen to creation. And again, you literally read this all over the Old Testament. Hodge just gives a couple of examples. You can flip with me back to just the book of Isaiah alone. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 verse 6. This is what he says. Speaking first of all about the righteous branch, the Messiah who's going to come. He says in verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then he begins to talk about the time of the Messiah when he says the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together and the little child will lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Hodge points to Isaiah 29 in verse 17. You read another of these grand statements of hope. Isaiah 29, 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? The fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The meek shall obtain the fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind will exult in the Holy One of Israel. Hodge takes you to Isaiah 32 and verse 12. Beat your breasts for the uh, pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and thistles. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the place is forsaken, the populous city destroyed, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild beasts, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field deemed a forest. And justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. The effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings in quiet places. Over in chapter 35, he says, The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. Verse 1, The desert will rejoice and blossom with the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. You could go to other places. Joel 2. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. 
He says in verse 22, Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear its fruit. A fig tree and a vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured out, uh, excuse me, poured down for you abundant rain. The early and latter rain is before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. Vats will overflow with wine and oil. I'll restore to you the years that the swarm Forming locusts have eaten, the hopper and the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You will eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people will never again be put to shame. Over and over and over again, God, you see here God speaking this way. When God speaks of the restoration of His people, He also speaks of a restoration of creation. That's why Paul talks about how creation is longing for this. It's eagerly waiting for this. Ezekiel 36, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you'll be my people and I'll be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon again the grain and make it abundant. Lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine. He says in Zechariah 8, But now I will not deal with you, I would deal with the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be a sowing of peace, the vine will give its fruit, the ground give its abundance, the heavens will give their due, and I'll cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Amos 9, in in that day I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen, repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in days of old, that they might possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountain will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. And so you see where Paul gets this. You understand why he has so much hope. You can see that when God gives hope to his fallen people that they will be restored, right along with it, he gives hope that he will also restore his creation. He gave this hope and the creation, Paul tells us, eagerly waits for it. It waits for the freedom of the sons of God, the full restoration to its functioning as a theater for God's glory, restored away from this corruption and this deprivation that it's been in in the current time. This is the hope of Scripture. Not so much a contrast between this world and another world, not so much a contrast between this world and heaven, as much as it is a contrast between different times between a world that is subject to creation and a world that is renewed at the coming of the Messiah. This world is not set for annihilation, it's set for restoration. To be reborn like the children of God. Paul describes our own resurrection 1 Corinthians 15, what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. Paul's drawing that same 
link, if you will. In the same way that we have this expectation, creation has its own. Very quickly, that takes us to Paul's third statement regarding the present. He showed us the past, he he showed us the future, but he has a statement about the present creation. He says, we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is the status. It's the current status. Here in the age of the church, here on the, this side of the cross, Paul says the creation is still groaning. It hasn't yet taken place. All of these promises that were given to it in hope, they haven't yet taken place. But there's an eager expectation looking to the future. And as it's looking, you, you see the groaning of creation all around you. It's groaning with its catastrophes and it's groaning with all of its natural disasters. But these aren't death pains. These aren't death pains. No matter how bad it gets, and it may get much worse, this is not an indication of death. It's an indication of what? Coming birth. That's the image Paul uses. You are witnessing the groaning pains of childbirth. The trembling, the agitation of creation all in anticipation of the day of glory to God. This world, this universe surging toward its end and it's not an end of ultimate annihilation. It's not an end of of catastrophic upheaval because of some environmental catastrophe. It is an end which has a new birth, a remaking of all things, a release out of the bondage of corruption into the freedom that awaits the children of God. Freedom associated with the state of glory that you and I are destined to be in. And we long for this. People tell us, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get all wrapped up in all this stuff. You shouldn't spend all your time sitting around pondering what all that's going to be like. You shouldn't sit around trying to speculate about what all that hope and all those verses in the Old Testament are like. Why not? I mean, you should sooner tell an expectant mother to not sit around and think about the blessing of nurturing her little child against her, her chest while she goes through her birth pains, than to tell a believer that he is to suffer along in everything that this world throws at him without pondering what is waiting for us up ahead. Paul says these are birth pains. And then with those birth pains, you get through them by looking past them, right? Right? You get through them by that eager expectation for what lies ahead. That either eager longing. Because you know that when it arrives, all the pain is forgotten, right? All the anguish, the distant memory, in light of the blessings that are to come. It'll be glorious and it'll bring glory and much glory to God. And we say with the apostle, come quickly, Lord, right? Come quickly. 
Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we are grateful for this hope that indeed you have, you have subjected not only us, but all this creation around us in futility and in frustration. And even we, as we battle against the thorns and the thistles, the heat and the cold, the famine and the hunger, even as we battle against all that corruption has brought to creation, we don't battle without hope. But we endure, Lord, knowing that you have only for this time brought creation under this bondage. But there awaits for us this freedom guaranteed to us by the work of our Savior. And Lord, how we long for it that not only we, but everything you've made might continually offer to you the praise and and honor and glory that's due to your name. So bring it to pass, O Lord. Bring about this new birth in your people and in your creation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.